Welcome to Equipped with Dr. Mario Escobedo. This podcast is designed to equip and grow you as a disciple who advances the mission Jesus started. In each episode, Dr. Escobedo discusses timeless biblical truths. You'll learn how to apply those truths and continue to grow as a disciple of Jesus. So settle in and get ready to be equipped. And now, here's the host of Equipped, Dr. Mario Escobedo. Greetings, blessings, and welcome to Equip the Podcast, episode number two. Hey, we're on a roll, the second episode. I'm thrilled to be able to share this teaching with you. I've got some good stuff to share with you in this episode, and everything from start to finish, every single one of the episodes of this podcast is designed to equip you to grow as a disciple who advances the mission Jesus started. Listen, you and I, we're fellow disciples. We're both on this journey to grow as disciples of Jesus because we want to see God's kingdom advanced on this earth. We want to see the mission of Jesus continue through us. And so my prayer is that through each one of the episodes of this podcast, you would be equipped, that you would grow, and that you would continue to fulfill your role in advancing the mission Jesus started. Listen, if you haven't heard episode number one of this podcast, I want to encourage you to do so. Either pause what you're listening to right now or finish this episode and then go listen to episode number one. And the reason that I'm suggesting that you do that is because in that episode, I share some information about who I am. I think it's important you know who's providing these teachings to you. I also talk about who this podcast is designed for and what you can expect from the episodes of this podcast. So I think it'd be beneficial to you to go back and listen to episode number one if you haven't had the chance to do so. Hey, speaking about discipleship and equipping you and growing you, I've created a free workshop that I'd love for you to get a hold of, completely free, at my website, marioescobedo.org. There's a link in the description of this episode that'll take you right there. The title of that workshop is The Call to discipleship. This is a four-part workshop. I put together four videos. Now, don't don't worry. They're not long. I average about eight or nine minutes per video, four videos. And what I do in that workshop is that I look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. This is where Jesus called his first disciples. And in looking at that passage, I extract some principles that I think are helpful very beneficial to you and to me as we grow as disciples of Jesus. So check that out. You can also, in fact, you can use that teaching as a teaching of your own, meaning if you're teaching a small group or a Sunday school class or just talking with somebody, you're also in the process of equipping or discipling somebody. You can use that teaching to share with them. So check that out, marioescobedo.org, completely free. All I need is your email address, and you can get your hands on on that workshop, The Call to Discipleship. In this episode of Equipped, we're going to be looking at John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, a very well-known event from the life and the ministry of Jesus. This is where Jesus had the encounter with the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. We're going to look at that passage with the purpose of extracting principles that will help us grow as disciples of Jesus. But before we get into that teaching, I want to go into a segment that I'm calling, Did You Hear About This?
Did you hear about this is a segment that I'm going to be featuring maybe not in every single episode of the podcast, but I do anticipate that I'll be featuring it in several of the upcoming episodes. What I'm doing in this segment is that I'm looking at something that's happening in the world today. It could be in the world of politics. It could be in the world of just society in general. It could be like in this episode, the church world. And I'm doing this not just, it's, it's not gossip. It's not like a TMZ kind of thing. Not at all. What I'm doing through this episode is I'm looking at something that's happening in our world today and then providing some suggestions as to how we as disciples of Jesus should react or should respond or can grow from that situation that we'll be analyzing in each of the segments. So that's the purpose of this. It's not a gossip segment. It's a segment that we will help that, that that'll help us grow as disciples of Jesus. Listen, even though we're not of this world, we're in this world. And so we need to know how to interact with this world and how to respond appropriately as disciples of Jesus to events that we see happening in the world today. Today's segment of Did You Hear About This has to do with something that is really affecting the church world particularly. It has implications outside of the church, but it, it really is, it's, it's affecting the church in a, in a pretty, pretty significant way. And maybe you've already heard about this. It's the scandal that has to do with Ravi Zacharias. If you don't know who Ravi Zacharias is, Ravi Zacharias, he passed away in May of 2020. But for many, many years, Ravi Zacharias had a very significant, a big international ministry. And Ravi Zacharias wrote books. He, he would give talks, uh, particularly at college campuses, and I think I would, I would label Ravi Zacharias as a Christian apologist. That means that he would provide a defense of the Christian faith. He would provide reasons and rationale and evidence as to why the Christian faith is really the only, the only faith, right? The, the only true faith. He'd provide evidence and reason and rationale as to why God exists, why Jesus is who Jesus said he was or, or who he claimed to be. So a lot of his talks were directed to atheists and people who, in general, just didn't believe in God. Well, unfortunately, Ravi Zacharias was involved in, in a scandal, pretty significant scandal, very, very, very sad when you begin to hear the details of this scandal. And as I mentioned, he passed away in May 2020, and even prior to his death, uh, he, there were some allegations about Ravi Zacharias and some sexual misconduct. After his death, those allegations continued, and well, it appears that they, they're true. And uh, I'm going to be referencing some information that I read from an article in Christianity Today that was published on February the 11th in 2021. I'll leave a link to that episode. That way you can check it out if you'd like. The title of this, of this article in Christianity Today is Ravi Zacharias Hid Hundreds of Pictures of Women, Abuse During Massages, and a Rape Allegation. The, the details are, are, I don't say this in a judgmental way, but they're disgusting. It's just, it's, it's very sad, especially considering who Ravi Zacharias was. I don't exaggerate when I say that this man impacted thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people through his ministry over the years. International ministry, a man held in very high regard in Christian circles. And so this, this uh, it's just a tragic, a tragic end to what was a very fruitful ministry from what we can tell. Now, 
His ministry continues, Ravi Zacharias International Ministry. And something that I found interesting is that Ravi Zacharias International Ministry, the people who carried on the ministry, who are carrying on his ministry after his death, they commissioned a report. They hired Miller and Martin attorneys, a law firm, to carry out an investigation into these allegations of sexual misconduct. And what I found interesting is that once this report was prepared, Ravi Zacharias International Ministry, RZIM, they made that report public. Now, I don't think they had to. I don't think they were obligated to make that report public, but they did. You can question their motives. You can doubt their sincerity in making that report public, available to the public. But the fact of the matter is they did. And I think that was the right thing to do. It's a 12-page report prepared by this law firm, Miller and Martin. And in the course of that investigation, this law firm interviewed 50, 50 witnesses. And they also examined several of, of the phones that Ravi Zacharias used over the course of about four years. And uh, here in the report, I'm, it, it, by the way, if you go to that Christianity Today article that I'm leaving a link to in the description, they have a link to the full 12-page report that you can read if you'd like. But in the end, this is what the lawyers concluded, quote, we are confident that we uncovered sufficient evidence to conclude that Mr. Zacharias engaged in sexual misconduct, end quote, though the investigation was not exhaustive. So they're saying we didn't interview every single potential witness. We didn't chase down every lead. We didn't uh, investigate every allegation, but we did enough to lead us to the conclusion that, yes, he did engage in sexual misconduct. Let me read just a little bit, not a whole lot, but just a little bit from the article in Christianity Today. This is how it reads. A four-month investigation found the late Ravi Zacharias leveraged his reputation as a world-famous Christian apologist to abuse massage therapists in the United States and abroad over more than a decade while the ministry, led by his family members and loyal allies, failed to hold him accountable. He used his need for massage and frequent overseas travel to hide his abusive behavior, luring victims by building trust, through spiritual conversations, and offering funds straight from the ministry. They go on to say that the report that, I, that I've referenced a few times now confirms abuse by Zacharias at day spas that he owned in Atlanta and uncovers five additional victims in the U.S. as well as evidence of sexual abuse in Thailand, India, and Malaysia. Um, yeah, let, let me read just a little bit more. Even a limited review of Zacharias' old devices revealed contacts for more than 200 massage therapists in the U.S. and Asia and hundreds of images of young women, including some that showed the women naked. Zacharias solicited and received photos until a few months before his death in May 2020 at age 74. Um, but there's just a lot here. There, there's a lot here. In fact, uh, this will be the last thing I read from, from the article. One woman told the investigators that after he arranged for the ministry to provide her with financial support, he required sex from her. She called it rape. Yeah, pretty heavy stuff. Uh, again, if, if you know who Ravi Zacharias is, you, you know this is devastating. And it, it, it's not just because Ravi Zacharias is a big name. If it were anybody, in in 
in the Christian world, anybody in the kingdom, this is devastating. What I think makes it all the more devastating is that he was a very well-known man, both inside and outside of Christian circles. The question now becomes, how do we as disciples respond? How do we react to this situation? And I'd like to propose a few suggestions as to some potential ways that we could react or that we should react as disciples of Jesus. Now understand that in talking about this situation, my purpose is not to drag his name through the mud, not in the least, not at all, but it happened. It's there. We can't sweep it under the rug. There's enough of that that's happened before in the church. We can't ignore it. We can't try to explain it away. No, we need to deal with it. And I think that at least one way that we need to deal with this is recognize we're disciples of Jesus and we need to learn from situations. We need to learn from real world situations. Things can't just be theoretical all the time. We can't hide our head in the sand and just ignore things. We need to confront things. And so let me suggest to you at least a few ways. I'm think, I think you can, you can think up of several more of how, as disciples of Jesus, we can and should respond to this situation. The first thing I see that is of crucial importance for any disciple of Jesus is the need for accountability. Nobody, there's not a single disciple of Jesus who is above the need for accountability. And one of the portions that I read from this article, it says that the ministry leaders were family members and allies of Ravi Zacharias, they failed to hold him accountable. Now, I don't know what that means exactly. I don't know the details of their failure to hold him accountable means, but obviously there was lack of accountability there. And I think it's just absolutely crucial for any disciple of Jesus, regardless of your stature, meaning how well-known you are in the world, regardless of your level of spiritual maturity, whether you're barely starting off as a disciple of Jesus or you've been a disciple for many years, we all have the need for accountability, every single one of us. And when you don't hold yourself accountable to somebody, when there's nobody who can ask you the hard questions, call you to account for attitudes or behaviors that you're displaying that don't evidence your claim to be a disciple of Jesus, If there's nobody to speak into your life that way, you're in a danger zone, the need for accountability. If we learn something from this situation, it should be, we need to be accountable. What else do I do? Do I learn from this? I think very obviously anybody, anybody who is a disciple of Jesus has the potential to fall. Yeah. We'd all like to think, ah, it won't happen to me, or it won't happen to my favorite preacher, or it won't happen to my pastor, but I'm going to tell you, every single one of us, we have the potential to give into temptation and to fall into sin. Every single one of us. And, and understanding that, what that should motivate us to do is to run to Christ, first of all, but also be careful in how much we lift up earthly leaders. Now, look, there's no way that I'm ever going to say, don't trust your leaders. No, that, that's ridiculous. That, that's just, that's ridiculous. You can't do that. You can't not trust any, anybody just because they might fall at some point. No, there has to be a balance, however. 
you need to trust the leaders God places over you. At the same time, you need to recognize that they continue to be human. And that as humans, there's the potential for them to give into temptation and to fall into sin. We need to recognize that. And I think what's very important for us to recognize as we understand that is that our trust in human leaders can't be so deep that if they were to fall, it would devastate us to the point that we abandon our faith. This is a genuine concern, a genuine fear that I have as fallout from this scandal from Ravi Zacharias, that there will be people who blindly trusted and followed Ravi Zacharias that elevated him to the position of almost perfection, that no, this guy can do no wrong, and that when they found out about this scandal, that their faith was shaken so much that maybe even them, some of them began to doubt their faith, and maybe some of them even abandoned their faith. That's the danger zone. We need to trust our human leaders, but not to the point that their failure would result in our falling away from the faith. And we've seen that happen before. We've seen people who are just so disillusioned, so disgusted, so disappointed, so they're just torn apart by one of their leaders falling into sin that they just want nothing to do with the church, nothing to do with God. And we need to be careful as disciples of Jesus, Jesus, (laughs) we need to be careful that we don't elevate our leaders to that position, that they can do no wrong, because when they do fall, then that just might be devastating to our faith. The final thing I'd like to suggest as something that we need to uh, do or a way in which we need to react, respond to this situation is this. I'm going to summarize it in one word, and here it is, grace. Grace. We need to extend grace. And it's hard. It's, it's tough. It's not easy to extend grace, especially when it's to somebody from whom you expected more. Especially when it's from, to, to, you're extending grace to somebody who you expected them to live a life of morality and integrity, and you find out that they've been living a double stand, a double life their entire, or for many years, we still need to extend grace. Here's something I think we've misunderstood about grace, and this is probably, this could be a reason why we've been reluctant to extend grace to individuals. I think that we've misunderstood grace as ignoring the sin, as condoning the sin, as turning a blind eye towards the sin. We think that that's grace. That's not grace. That's foolishness. We need to call out the sin, but we do it in grace. Grace is not turning a blind eye to someone's sin. Rather, it's calling out the sin and saying, but there's forgiveness, but there's opportunity for reconciliation, but we serve a God who forgives. That's grace. We don't ignore the sin. We don't try to cover up the sin. We acknowledge the sin, but then we point them to the God of grace that we serve, the God of forgiveness. And I'm going to tell you that every single one of us, each one of us has been a recipient of God's grace. That in and of itself should be the biggest motivator for us to extend grace to somebody else. So those are the three takeaways from this unfortunate situation 
from this scandal, three takeaways that, that I that I that I see from this scandal: the need for accountability, being careful not to elevate leaders to a position of infallibility and perfection, and also, very importantly, perhaps the most important for me, extending grace, not condoning, not turning a blind eye to the sin, but extending grace. Very well, that does it for this segment of Did You Hear About This? And now. Let's go into our teaching, our equipping time. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, again, a very well-known passage. This is where we're going to be focusing our time for this episode's equipping time. That's what I'm calling the teaching. It's time to equip you looking at a passage of Scripture, extracting some principles that we can apply to our lives as disciples of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to read this entire passage word for word because I think that you, you're at least familiar with this passage. So let me just summarize it. Jesus is at the temple. All of a sudden, some scribes and Pharisees bring him a woman who was caught, according to them, in the act of adultery. They tell Jesus, okay, the law says that we should stone her. What do you think? Jesus was scribbling something in the sand with his finger. He gets up and he says, okay, whichever among you is without sin, you should be the first one to throw the stone. Then he just went back to scribbling in the sand. One by one, the passage tells us, beginning with the older ones, they began to leave And it was just now Jesus and the woman. Jesus asks the woman, hey, where are the people who accused you, who condemned you? She says, they're not here. There's no one here. And he says, well, I don't condemn you either, but go and don't sin anymore. And that's the summary of the story. What I want to do is I'm going to share just some insights, some things that I've been thinking about on this passage then I'm going to talk to you about a way, a principle, a general principle for interpreting the Gospels, and then what I think is the big discipleship takeaway from this passage. Now, I've been thinking about this. When I talk to people about this passage or when I hear people teaching or preaching on this passage, I think the question that comes up most frequently is, where is the man? This woman was caught in the act of adultery. Yet, she's the only one who was brought before Jesus. Where is the man? Obviously, if she was committing adultery, there there had to have been a man. Why wasn't he brought before Jesus? Why did the scribes and the Pharisees only bring the woman and not the man? Well, I, I I have some suggestions as to what happened with the man. And I'm going to tell you right off the bat that these are speculations. There's no way I can either prove or disprove what I'm about to suggest to you because the text doesn't tell us where was the man. So this is purely speculation on my part, but I think that these scenarios that I'm going to present to you are plausible. That means that, you know, as I think about it, well, okay, I can't prove it, but that sounds reasonable. That sounds like something that could have happened. So let me present to you some scenarios as to where was the guy? Where's the man in all of this? Okay, scenario number one, he just got away, right? Somehow they caught these two people in the act of adultery, and as they're, I don't know, grabbing them or or dragging them out of the place wherever they were, 
the guy just got away. Okay, that makes sense, right? That's that's plausible. I can't prove that for sure, but it's plausible, right? That the reason they only brought the woman before Jesus is because the guy was just fat. He he ran faster and he, and he got away, right? It's it's like when you're running away from a lion and you're with a buddy, you don't have to outrun the lion. You just have to outrun your buddy, right? That's it. And so maybe the guy just he got away. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two. What if? What if? The woman who was caught in adultery was the wife of one of the scribes or Pharisees. Ever think about that? That maybe the reason they were able to catch this woman in the act, the very act of adultery, is because, well, she was the wife of one of the scribes or Pharisees, and he came home early one day, and surprise, surprise, she wasn't alone. And so what does he do? He drags her out, and in a fit of rage, he takes her in front of Jesus. Now, that doesn't answer the question, where was the guy? You would think that in his anger, he would have brought the guy as well. But maybe we'll go back to scenario number one. Maybe he was fast enough and he got away. Okay, that's the second scenario. Third scenario, what if, what if the woman was caught in the act of adultery with one of the scribes or Pharisees? Maybe it's not that the guy got away. Maybe it's that the guy was one of the one of the Pharisees himself, and so they bring this woman. They see an opportunity to trap Jesus, but they're protecting their buddy. I, I can see that happening. I mean, we just referenced the Ravi Zacharias situation. How people who were around him they didn't hold him accountable. I, I have to think that somebody at some point was aware of that taking place, and they covered up. Right, the fallout was going to be too much. I can see that happening here with one of the scribes or one of the Pharisees that maybe they're human, right? They weren't perfect. Maybe it was one of them who was committing adultery with this woman. And so they find an opportunity to trap Jesus and at the same time, cover up for their buddy. After all, if this woman would have said, oh, it was that guy right there, they could just shut her up and they could discredit her on the spot. That's another scenario. It's plausible. I can't prove it, but it's plausible. The final scenario is that maybe all of this was a setup. Now, we learn from the Gospels, not just from John, but from the Gospels in general, that the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, were always looking for a way to trap Jesus, especially as Jesus began to grow in his fame and as people began to know who he was more and more, they continued to look for more ways to trap Jesus. And I wonder, if this whole situation wasn't set up from start to finish by the Pharisees in an attempt to trap Jesus, meaning that they found some guy that they knew who was a womanizer. They knew he was a scoundrel. They didn't care for him. They, they didn't care what happened to him. They found this woman and they lured her into having this adulterous affair with this man. And they told the man, Hey, don't worry about it. You're not going to get in trouble. We just want her. We, we, you know, we're setting something up. Don't worry about it. It's for the greater good. This guy over here, Jesus, he's causing all kinds of trouble. So listen, we just need you to do this. It's for the greater good, right? And you're not going to get in trouble. I can see that happening. Can't prove it, right? Again, I can't prove it. But what we see in the Gospels, from what we see in the Gospels, the scribes and the Pharisees, generally speaking, I mean, they, they were, you know, they weren't the, the, the men with most integrity, at least from the presentation we get of them 
in the gospel. So I can see this happening, that they're setting up this entire trap just to get Jesus to say something that they could later use against him. Those are just some plausible scenarios. I've just been thinking about those. I wonder what you think about that. I wonder if you've thought a little bit about where was the guy in all of this. Now, as we read the gospels, I want to propose to you a a principle, a guideline for interpreting the gospels, especially when it comes to interpreting a section of the gospels that has to do with the life, the ministry, or the events of Jesus himself. And here's what I'd like to propose to you. When we're reading the gospels, we need to ask the question, is there something that Jesus did in this passage that I, as his disciple, need to imitate? Is there an attitude that he demonstrated that I, as his disciple, need to imitate? Is there a behavior that he exhibited that I, as his disciple, need to imitate? Now, let me tell you why I feel that guideline is so important to follow as we interpret the Gospels. I think that when we interpret the Gospels, what we typically, what we tend to do, and I hear this in preachings and teachings, typically, we identify ourselves with the individuals in the story who had an encounter with Jesus. And we put ourselves in their place and we learn from them. That's not wrong, by no means. For example, in this, in this situation that we're looking at here, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, I can very easily see ourselves identifying ourselves with the scribes and Pharisees and learning what not to do from them that we would be individuals, that we'd read this story, and we'd say, listen, what we learn from this is that we shouldn't be judgmental, that we shouldn't be looking for the downfall of others. And I've heard that preached and taught before, and that's valid. I completely agree. That's valid. On other occasions, what I've heard is that we identify ourselves with the woman who was caught in adultery, and it'll go something like this. Every single one of us, we've sinned and we need God's grace and he doesn't condemn us. Others might condemn you for your sin, but Jesus doesn't condemn you for your sin. You're just like that woman and and you can receive the same forgiveness that that she received from Jesus, yet you need to go and sin no more. And that's valid. That, That makes sense, right? We can easily identify ourselves with characters who had encounters with Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's if that's where if that's as far as you go, I'm suggesting that you're stopping short and that you're missing out on the bigger picture. Because I think the question that we need to ask every time we read about something that Jesus did, we need to ask the question, what did Jesus do? What attitude did he display? What behavior did he exhibit that I as his disciple need to imitate or incorporate in my life. Now, I understand, obviously, there are certain things that Jesus did that we can't do. He's the Son of God. (laughs) He's God himself. And so, obviously, there are certain things that, no, we're not going to be able to do them. But I would say that in the greater majority of the time, when we read something about Jesus in the Gospels, there's definitely something that we can imitate from that, be it an attitude or a behavior. Now, with that, That's that interpretive principle, interpretive guideline that I'd like to leave with you and challenge you that from this point forward, when you read from the Gospels, use use that. Use that lens. Ask the question, what did Jesus do here that I, as his disciple, 
need to imitate or incorporate into my life? And applying that question to this situation here, I think we get a very, very clear and obvious answer. What did Jesus do here? He extended grace. Notice, he told the woman, I don't condemn you either. Who, who here, where, where are your accusers? Well, they're not here. Well, I don't condemn you either. Notice how Jesus extended grace. And he had every right to condemn this woman. She had no excuse. She had no defense. She was caught in the very act of adultery. And when the Pharisees asked Jesus, hey, what do you think we should do? What do you say? The law says we should stone her. What do you say? The right answer would have been, yeah, you're right. The law does say to stone her. But what Jesus did here is that he extended grace. I want you to notice that he didn't, he didn't side with the Pharisees and say, yeah, you should stone her. But at the same time, he didn't violate the law by saying, hey, look, I know the law says this, but give her a break. I mean, come on, come on, give her a break. No, he didn't violate the law. He simply said, you know, if, if, if you've never sinned, go right ahead, carry out the law. <laughs> and essentially what I, what I see Jesus was saying here is the following, not so much only if you haven't sinned, but also saying, okay, if you've never been a recipient of God's grace, go ahead and cast the first stone. Because undoubtedly, every man who was there ready to chuck a stone at this woman, obviously he had sinned. And obviously, he had received forgiveness. He had, he had received grace. And so I think Jesus was not only saying, if you haven't sinned, but I think the implicit declaration there was, if you've never received God's grace, if you've never received God's forgiveness for a sin you've committed, then go ahead and cast the first stone. Jesus extended grace. And I want you to notice a, a massive difference between Jesus and the Pharisees in this case. The Pharisees were using the law as a weapon against the people of Israel. They had taken the law and they had converted it into something that God did not intend for it to be. God intended the law to be something that would draw the people close to him. God intended the law to be something that would give the people guidelines and parameters as to how to live as the people of God. It was never meant to be a threat. Yes, there are consequences. There are punishments built into the law for violating the law. But the heart of the law was not punishment and disaster and doom. The heart of the law was keeping the people of God close to God. And I'll tell you that with every consequence, every punishment in the law, there was always the opportunity for forgiveness. There was always the opportunity for offering a sacrifice, for doing something to receive God's grace. Unfortunately, the scribes and the Pharisees had converted the law into something that God never intended for it to be. And in Jesus's response, I think we see the heart of God. We see the heart of the law in, in Jesus's response that the law, yes, there's consequence. Yes, there are punishments, but there's grace. Even in the law, there's grace. And in Jesus's response, we see the heart of God calling people back to him. There's forgiveness. There's grace. You don't have to die in your sin. And of course, the greatest expression of God's grace and forgiveness is Jesus Christ himself. So if Jesus in this situation 
extended grace to this woman. And we're disciples of Jesus. He's our example of how to live. Then obviously what we need to do is extend grace. When we come across individuals who, beyond the shadow of a doubt, they've sinned. They've been caught red-handed in their sin. They've got no defense. They have no explanation. I mean, it's, it's obvious that they have sinned. What does our response need to be? Grace. Again, that doesn't mean that we turned a, a blind eye to the sin, that we condone their sin, that we, that we just say, oh, you know, d- don't worry about it. Because look, Jesus in this situation, he told the woman, okay, go, but stop sinning. Don't sin anymore. Stop sinning. He didn't condone her sin. He told her, stop sinning, but he extended grace to her. As disciples of Jesus, here's an important growth opportunity for us. We need to extend grace. We are people of grace. Why? Because we serve a God of grace. We extend grace. Why? Because we've been given grace. I think that's the biggest motivator for us to extend grace. We ourselves, we have received grace. And I'm going to tell you that, unfortunately, I've seen this in many Christians, and I've done it myself. I've been a Pharisee. I've looked at other people's sin, and I've said, hmm, you deserve the full measure of punishment that the law says you deserve. And I I drag them before Jesus maybe not literally or physically, but spiritually or in my mind, I drag them before Jesus and I say, get them, Jesus. (laughs) Here, Get them. They've got no excuse. They've sinned. It's it's obvious. They were caught red-handed in their sin. I saw them. Get them, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I have been that Pharisee. And I think what Jesus teaches me here is, oh, grace, grace. And I'll tell you, I, I've been that woman caught in adultery, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, of course. <laughs> I've been that person who has sinned so egregiously, offended God so badly that I've got no defense. I've got no, no explanation. I've been caught red-handed in my sin. Yet I remember the grace that God has extended to me. And because I've been a recipient, not once, not twice, but many times over, I've been a recipient of God's grace. It is now incumbent on me as a disciple of Jesus to extend grace to others, even as they are caught red-handed in their sin. So that's what we take away. At least that's what I take away from this situation. Not only learning from the Pharisees and their mistake, and not only learning to avoid and not imitate what the Pharisees did, not only identifying myself with the woman, someone who is in need of God's grace, but most importantly, asking the question, what did Jesus do in this situation? And then as his disciple, making sure that I imitate that myself, that I incorporate that into my life. Okay, that does it for this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that what you've learned here is something that's going to help you grow as a disciple of Jesus. I know you want to grow, and that's what this teaching has been all about. I've equipped you 
And if you feel that you've been equipped, then I'm going to ask you to do this. Take what you've learned here, definitely put it into practice. But now, why don't you go equip somebody else? Take what you've learned in this teaching and take it to equip somebody else. Hey, I'm praying for you. We're fellow disciples. We're on this journey together to grow as disciples of Jesus. And until the next one, God bless. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Equipped with Dr. Mario Escobedo. Our prayer is that what you learned in this episode was both encouraging and challenging. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so that you never miss out on the teaching. Also, be sure to check out additional resources at Dr. Escobedo's website, marioescobedo.org, and on his YouTube channel. Links to both are in the description of this episode. Thanks again, and may you continue to be thoroughly equipped.